good evening everyone and welcome to our first meeting of 2013. Our speaker this evening is Claire Chambers. Um, she is a political philosopher at Cambridge currently and she's the author of two books on political philosophy and her topic tonight is The Marriage-Free State. Claire. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for um, the invitation and thank you so much for coming. Um, I will just start straight ahead. So feminists have long criticised the institution of marriage. Historically, it's been a fundamental site of women's oppression, with married women having few independent rights in law. And currently, it's associated with the gender division of labour, with women taking on the lion's share of domestic labour and caring work, and being paid less than men for work outside the home. The white wedding is also replete with sexist imagery. You have you know, the white dress symbolising virginity, the father giving away the bride, the priest or the vicar giving permission for the husband to kiss the wife rather than them both doing it jointly. But despite decades of feminist criticism, the institution resolutely endures, although not without significant change. And perhaps the most significant change in recent years has been the introduction of same-sex marriages and civil partnerships here in Britain and in other countries such as the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, Canada and parts of the USA. And in the USA in particular, it's been a really pertinent issue of recent politics. Now, if marriage is to exist as a state-recognised institution, then I think it must, as a matter of, of, of justice, be open to same-sex couples as well as to um, heterosexual couples. And there's a great deal to celebrate in these recent moves to widen marriage. And there's some really kind of wonderful photographs you can see on the web of, of um, same-sex couples marrying and being so overjoyed at this opportunity. But in this paper, I'm going to argue that even these welcome reforms do not go far enough. And in particular, um, that feminist arguments, and feminists have been the most um, kind of vocal crit critics of marriage, imply that marriage should not be state-recognised at all, that the, the state-recognised institution of marriage should be abolished. So I'm going to start by outlining the feminist critique of marriage, and then in the second part of the paper, I am going to suggest how I think that relationships should be regulated instead. Now, in feminist argument, we can identify, I think, two distinct critiques of marriage. And both of them are common, but they're somewhat in tension. The first critique says that traditional marriage is bad because it oppresses women. And the implication of that critique, then, is that being married makes you worse off if you are a woman. But the second kind of strand of feminist critiques is the idea that marriage is bad because it oppresses and discriminates against homosexuals. And the implication of that critique is that being married is a good thing, and so not being able to be married if you're a same-sex couple is a problem. And these seem somewhat contradictory. If marriage is oppressive to its participants, why should homosexuals want to participate in it? On the other hand, if marriage confers privileges, and that's why same-sex couples ought to be allowed to do it, why are feminists complaining about it? But these two critiques are often found together in the writings of many feminists. So I'm going to start by trying to work out why these two critiques both come from the same kind of feminist position and whether they can be reconciled. And we can kind of divide them, I think, into what I'm going to call practical and symbolic effects. So it's not a rigid distinction there, but the idea is that marriage might be oppressive practically if it is damaging or undermining of an um, individual's material or legal status. And it might be oppressive symbolically if it in some way um, consolidates or instantiates unequal social norms. 
So we can think of a kind of four-way split in common feminist critiques of marriage between practical and symbolic harms of marriage, either to women who do get married or to same-sex couples if they are not allowed to get married. Now, I think this four-way split can partly explain some of the kind of troubling ambiguity we get when trying to work out what the feminist position on marriage should be and whether feminists should celebrate or reject moves such as the extension of marriage to same-sex couples. And it explains the kind of ambiguity that's often expressed by feminists. So, for example, one feminist couple writing in a, in a recent journal article say, in short, we want to get married and we do not. And that kind of ambiguity is what I'm going to start talking about in the first part of the paper. So the first feminist critique, then, of marriage is that it might have practical effects that make women worse off. And these kind of practical, empirical harms that relate to marriage include contingent facts about the laws of marriage at the time, contingent facts about whether marriages um, uh, shore up and reinforce a gendered division of labour, um, and contingent facts about the sorts of um, uh, material position that women find themselves in before and after marriage. And so the force of these critiques depends on the particular legal and sociological facts uh, in place at any one time. And this, these kind of critiques, I think, are particularly salient in kind of recent historical versions of marriage when women's legal rights on marriage were extremely um, curtailed. And so you get lots of feminists arguing that marriage has to be reformed in various ways, that unequal laws must be changed, that um, material inequalities must be put into place. And these changes aren't easy, but they're certainly philosophically perfectly easy to, to kind of conceptualise. And there's no reason to suggest that marriage can't overcome these sorts of um, practical disadvantages, inequalities, even if it hasn't done that yet in any particular society. But feminists also argue that marriage disadvantages women symbolically by casting them as inferior. So Susan Okin, for example, argues that marriage has earlier and far greater impact on the lives and life choices of women than on those of men. And she describes how women and girls are much less likely to aspire to prestigious occupations, um, thinking that marriage is the main goal that they have to, um, for their adulthood. And there are various theorists engaging in this kind of assessment of the symbolic harms of marriage. And one particularly kind of pernicious symbolic harm that we can find in um, cultures about about uh, marriage is the idea that women are somehow kind of flawed and failing if they're not married. And one of my favourite examples, and by favourite, it's favourite because it's so kind of preposterous, I think, of this, is the best-selling self-help book, The Rules, which tells women how they should make sure they can kind of capture a husband by doing various things like not minding when men are angry, not telling the men what they like, and that kind of thing. And there's this little quote in The Rules where it's kind of talking to people who might think that perhaps these suggestions are you know, and not the right suggestions. And the writers of the rules say, if you think you're too smart for the rules, ask yourself, am I married? If not, why not? Could it be that what you're doing isn't working? Think about it. So, you know, you've got these kind of images that say, you know, women must be married. If they're not married, there's something wrong with them. And these are the things you can do to make yourself married, which is basically about submitting your desires to, to men. So these kind of symbolic harms that feminists critique about the institution might also be tied to the idea that marriage is disadvantageous practically. So we might think to ourselves, well, okay, insofar as marriage is an institution that has legal material disadvantage attached to it, 
then that kind of symbolic pressure to be married is clearly problematic. But if we can reform marriage to make it egalitarian, should we still worry about that kind of um, pressure, symbolic pressure to get married? Well, one way in which we might worry about pressure to enter into even reformed egalitarian marriage is that what marriage is, is an institution with symbolic meaning stretching back through its traditional past. So marriage has historically been an extremely oppressive and sexist institution. And so even if we have legal reforms of those aspects, then by calling women to um, aspire to marriage as a kind of ultimate goal, we're calling women to aspire to this tradition with this long sexist meaning. Now there's a question here about whether the meanings of an institution are fixed. We might think that the fact that marriage has a sexist historical um, incarnation doesn't mean that the current institution, if reformed, need retain that institution. And it does indeed seem obvious that institutions don't have to retain it, the taint of injustice permanently. So we can think, for example, of cotton picking and chimney sweeping as jobs that were once performed by slaves and by children, both unjust forms of labour. But if those forms of injustice are abolished, we don't think that cotton picking or um, chimney sweeping remain unjust occupations. Or democracy is another example. Right? You know, women have been denied the vote for you know, the majority of time of democracy in Western societies, but if women are granted the vote, that doesn't mean that voting remains um, an unjust thing to do. But I think that marriage is somewhat different than these examples because it's an institution that is entered into largely because of the meanings it represents and the symbolic kind of um, resonance that it has. So couples may marry to gain various practical benefits, but a large part of what people do when they marry is make a statement about their relationship. Say, our relationship is this sort of thing, the thing called marriage. And in doing that, then I think there is that kind of idea that marriage is calling into focus the tradition, and that includes the sexist past of the institution. Okay, so then that's the first strand, pardon me, of feminist critiques, that marriage is oppressive to women. The second strand is the idea that marriage as traditionally um, enacted in Western societies, is oppressive to homosexual couples because they are traditionally excluded from the institution. And that suggestion there, that marriage is heterosexist, implies that marriage is a benefit, a privilege, that those people who are married get an advantage. So therefore, many feminists um, favour gender, gender equality and argue that the key thing that feminists must argue for is the extension of marriage to same-sex couples. And once again, we can see practical and symbolic aspects of that aspect of the critique. So practically, marriage might privilege heterosexuality if married couples are given legal rights or tax breaks that are denied to unmarried couples. So, for example, in Britain, married couples get um, inheritance tax um, exemptions, which are denied to couples who are not married. So there's some kind of quite clear practical advantages that marriage might bring. But there are also symbolic advantages and symbolic ways in which denying marriage to same-sex couples would be um, it's an injustice or a disadvantage. So by recognising only heterosexual marriage, then what the state does is it confers legitimacy and approval to heterosexual partners, par partnerships, which it denies to same-sex partners. So, for example, um, Maria Bavacqua, a feminist lesbian, argues... The exclusion of a portion of the population from a major social institution creates a second-class citizenship for that group. 
This is a humiliating experience, whether as individuals we feel humiliated or not. Now, her insistence then that this humiliation is, is quite apart from the feelings of the individuals, again, emphasises the deeply symbolic nature of the institution and of the state's recognition of the institution. So marriage represents a particular kind of symbolic meaning that transcends any individual person or couple's understanding of it. So the meaning of marriage is not um, kind of uh, absolutely decided or determined by a marrying couple's views of marriage. So marriage appeals to supposedly shared understandings of value and understandings that can fail to respect minority groups and historically oppressed groups. And in particular, marriage reinforces the idea that the heterosexual monogamous union is the kind of ultimate form of relationship. And this kind of idea lies behind a lot of the uh, critiques we get of um, heterosexual-only marriage and a lot of the arguments from feminists that say that the feminist position should be to extend marriage. So, for example, um, Stoddard argues that marriage is the centrepiece of our entire social structure and resents and loathes the fact that homosexuals are not able to enter into that symbolic, uh, sorry, that sacred, noble institution. So according to these feminist critiques then, marriage can oppress both those heterosexual women who do or could participate in it, and those homosexual women and men who could not, if the state does not allow that. But these criticisms can conflict in their implications for marriage reform, and that, I think, leaves the debate very complicated. So consider, for example, whether it would be desirable, from a feminist perspective, to legalise same-sex marriage. Now, with these various feminist critiques in mind, we can see that the issue just isn't very clear-cut. So heterosexual-only marriage, feminists argue, is symbolically oppressive to women and to homosexuals. If homosexuals are allowed to marry, it's not clear whether the oppressiveness of the institution will kind of rub off onto homosexuals or whether the radical progressive move of bringing homosexuals in will rub off onto women, making women in heterosexual relationships as well better off. And theorists argue different things. So Stoddard argues that the progressiveness will prevail, whereas Paula Ettelbrick says that, um, in her words, marriage will not liberate us as lesbians and gay men. In fact, it will constrain us, make us more invisible, force our assimilation into the mainstream and undermine the goals of gay liberation. And we can identify similar ambiguities in the question of whether we should allow homosexual um, couples to enter into civil partnerships as distinct from marriage, as currently is the case in the UK. Now, there are two advantages with that idea of civil partnerships as opposed to marriage from the feminist point of view. One is that it's a way of giving homosexual couples access to the practical benefits of marriage. But the other is that symbolically that distinction between marriage and civil partnership might be a good thing because it enables people to enter into a partnership that doesn't bring with it that kind of patriarchal sexist history. It's a way of breaking from that, um, that traditional um, sexism that I talked about earlier. And so some feminists also think that civil partnerships benefit heterosexual women as well as homosexual women and men because it undermines that kind of hegemony of marriage and undermines the extent to which marriage is tied to its patriarchal past. But on the other hand, we might say, actually, the policy of distinguishing civil partnership from marriage is deeply problematic from a feminist point of view 
Because as long as the title marriage is reserved for heterosexual partners and civil partnership is reserved for homosexual partners, you retain the idea that there is a sacred form of union that only heterosexual people can enter into. And you retain that symbolic disadvantage and inequality between the two. And such a move, of course, does nothing to undermine the kind of hierarchy that marriage enacts between being partnered and being single. So I think the question of how, from a feminist standpoint, we can best understand and interact with the institution of marriage is very complex. We can find arguments for almost any set of reforms and problems with any sets of reforms as well. Now, one way of understanding this diversity, I think, is by returning to the idea of marriage as an institution. So I suggest that it's somewhat puzzling if marriage is both oppressive to its participants and oppressive to its non-participants. But it might be that we can resolve that puzzle by distinguishing between um, the oppressiveness of entering in into an institution and the oppressiveness of that institution existing. In other words, it's possible that if the institution of marriage exists, then it's better to be part of that institution than, than not. But the very existence of that institution could in itself be oppressive. So in other words, it might be, better, might be that women are better off if there is no marriage at all, but if marriage does exist, then people in general are better off if they can access it. On this account, juxtaposing marriage's oppressiveness to women and its oppressiveness to homosexual couples kind of fails to compare like with like. So we're comparing the oppressiveness of entering into an institution with the oppressiveness of that institution existing at all. Now, the natural implication, I want to suggest, is that women and gay men are better off and justice is served if marriage ceases to exist as an institution and in particular as a state-recognised institution. So abolishing that institution, I think, satisfies all feminist critiques and is a policy implication around which feminists should unite. OK, I'm moving to part two of the paper now, and in this part I'm going to tell you what we should do instead. Uh, and it's called the marriage-free state. So I advocate, then, the abolition of state-recognised marriage and the institution of what I call a marriage-free state. Now, by recognition of marriage, what I mean is that the state recognises marriage in the relevant sense for my purposes when it applies a bundle of rights and duties, a set of rights and duties, to married people, and when it does that because they are married. So there's two aspects. There's the bundling aspect, and there's the giving the bundle to people only, because, only if and only because they are married. So in a society with state-recognised marriage, the marrying couple thereby acquire a bundle of rights and duties that they didn't otherwise have. They might acquire rights to inheritance without tax, rights to next of kinship, rights to immigration, and so on. These rights are given to the couple because and only because they are married, not because they have chosen each right in turn, because they haven't done that, and not because there's anything other than being married that distinguishes them from other couples, because there could be other couples living in identical circumstances who don't get those same rights. So again, in Britain, married couples have inheritance tax exemptions that no other couples have, or civil partnership partners do, but no other couples who are not married or in civil partnerships have that same exemption. 
So by abolishing state-recognised marriage, what I mean is that the state should no longer provide a bundle of rights and duties to people because they are married. It's that, that combination of those two features. It doesn't mean making it illegal for people to participate in the symbolic institution of marriage or to call themselves married. So it would still be perfectly legal for individuals to engage in secular or religious um, ceremonies of marriage, to call themselves married, to, to participate in all those kind of activities. But there would be no legal status or legal recognition attached to that activity. Now, even if marriage is abolished as a legal category, the question of how to regulate relationships remains. Uh, and it's not part of my argument to suggest that the state should not be involved in regulating relationships. Why not? Well, because there are all kinds of reasons why personal relationships have to be regulated. To protect vulnerable parties, such as children, but not only children. So as to regulate disputes over matters such as joint property, and so as to appropriately direct state benefits and taxes. So we need to know then, if marriage is not the right framework for regulating relationships, what is? Well, some argue that personal relationships should best be regulated on a contractual basis. Um, now, I think the contractual model, model has various problems, which I discuss elsewhere, but I can't discuss here. But even if we do permit relationship contracts, which have legal force, that can't be the be-all and end-all of relationship regulation. Because even if relationship con uh, contracts are permitted, we still need to have a regulatory framework to firstly stipulate the rules of contract and to uphold contracts and to set limits on contracts that would be unjust either for those contracting parties so for example ruling out you know voluntary slavery contracts that kind of thing or to ensure that any contracts are just for third parties again such as children and the state also have to provide has to provide um, guidance for disputes that arise between people who are in a relationship but who have not made a contract so there needs to be regulation that is separate from contract, whether or not we allow relationship contracts. And there's also a need for regulation to, project, to protect legitimate state interests as well. So relationship contracts cannot replace marriage. There may be a place for them. I'll remain kind of um, uh, in, uh, I'll remain neutral on that in this paper, but they cannot replace marriage. Now, I think it's useful to distinguish two general models for state regulation of relationships. And I'm going to call these two general models a holistic form of regulation and a piecemeal form of regulation. And most advocates of non-marital regulation of personal relationships take a holistic approach. And so I'm going to argue for a piecemeal approach, obviously, or else it would be no fun. So what do I mean? Well, holistic regulation of relationships involves creating a status analogous to marriage which again confers upon people a package, a bundle of legal rights and responsibilities. And both existing marriage and existing civil partnerships are examples of holistic regulation. You get a package, it's a, a, a status, you get the whole thing, comes together. So when entering into one of these relationships, couples, individuals take on a bundle of rights and responsibilities covering multiple areas of life, such as property, immigration, next of kinship, child custody and so on. On a holistic model of marriage, the state gives people those rights altogether. Now, civil unions are the most familiar 
alternative holistic status to marriage, um, but they're not the only one. So several progressive thinkers have recently argued in favour of new holistic statuses to replace marriage. Um, so some advocate versions of civil unions that differ in some respects from um, existing models that we have in actual legislatures. Um, people like um, Taylor and Sunstein, March, so on, argue for this. Other theorists advocate completely new statuses, usually replacing the marital focus on adult sexual partnership with an emphasis on care. So, for example, Tamara Metz proposes establishing, sorry, disestablishing marriage, replacing it with a state-recognised intimate caregiving union, ICGU, intimate caregiving union, ICGU status, one that could apply to any relationship of intimate caregiving. And similarly, Elizabeth Brake advocates what she calls minimal marriage, which is also a status dependent on caregiving. Now, all of these holistic models, civil unions, ICGU status, minimal marriage, improve on traditional patriarchal marriage insofar as they break from the patriarchal kind of history and exclusionary meanings of that institution. So they represent that symbolic shift, which is an advantage. Whether they're better practically depends on a case-by-case -case basis on the exact rights and duties that they bring with them. So, for example, a British civil partnership is, practically speaking, neither better nor worse than a marriage. It brings the same legal rights and duties. So its benefit is largely it's this break from the kind of heterosexist and sexist norm of marriage. But some of these holistic statuses are much more radical in their implications. So... Brake and Metz's caregiving union statuses um, are, are very different. And they both, I think, make a convincing case that care, caregiving, is a much better basis for public policy than marriage strictly defined. Because care is a more fundamental activity. So Elizabeth Brake describes it as a primary good in Rawlsian terms, essential to human flourishing. So for Brake and for Metz, state recognition of caregiving status is a way of protecting the vulnerable and allowing access to important social and human goods. Now, I endorse that claim that caregiving is crucial and worthy of state protection. I think that's right. Um, and I think that if you're going to have a holistic status, then one based on care is preferable to one based on marriage. But I'm going to suggest that implementing a new holistic status of whatever kind is not going to be the best replacement for traditional marriage. Why not? Well, there are two problems, I think, with holistic regulation as, a, as an approach, as a method of regulation. And the first is that holistic regulation involves giving this bundle of rights and duties that I've referred to a few times. And the second problem, I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. The second problem is that holistic regulation requires people to opt in to receive government protection. So let me expand those two ideas a bit more. Okay, first, the bundling problem. Well, holistic approaches tend to assume that all the most important functions of life are met within one core relationship. And that's the model behind marriage and civil unions. Now, many people, and most married people, do in fact centralise activities such as intimate coupledom, child rearing, property sharing, next of kinship and inheritance. And for people who do centralise those functions, then the bundling feature of marriage is unproblematic. Indeed, it's convenient. 
right? I mean, some people say to me, marriage is good because it's so easy. You just get married and then you've got it all together. So for many people, that's, that's one of the advantages of the institution. But I think in terms of state regulation, the state must recognise that many individuals' arrangements are much more wide-ranging than that. So separated couples with children may continue to co-parent but have no other relationship. Others maintain a nuclear family unit but also share <coughs> property or care with an elderly parent or sibling. So bundling caring activity into one privileged status just fails to do justice to the diversity that actually exists um, in, in real lives. So bundling is problematic in that it doesn't match what many people do. It's also problematic um, from a, a political or non-perfectionist liberal perspective. Um, so political liberals argue that the state should not endorse any particular conception of the good. But this bundling feature of marriage or civil union or any holistic status does precisely that. It says, this is the kind of relationship we expect people to have. And this is the kind of relationship we, we endorse. Now, some advocates of holistic regulation reject this bundling aspect for precisely the reason I've just outlined. So, for example, I mentioned Elizabeth Brake's minimal marriage. Now, according to Elizabeth Brake, minimal marriage, what she thinks is the holistic status that ought to replace current traditional marriage, would mean that every individual could be minimally married to more than one person. You could minimally marry anybody with whom you were in a caring relationship of a certain sort, and she sets out the criteria for that. So there, it is possible to imagine a status called by break marriage, although minimal marriage, which doesn't have this bundling feature. But even a status like Elizabeth Brakes, I feel, is vulnerable to the second problem with holistic regulation, which is the requirement to opt in. So, with holistic regulation, people must opt in so as to receive legal protection. So people who have not or have not yet chosen to enter into minimal marriage or civil union or ICGU status or whatever it might be are left unprotected, even if their relationships and their arrangements are functionally identical to those who have opted into that status. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, um, the Law Commission recently um, published uh, a piece on precisely this question. I'm just going to read you a bit from their report. They give a compelling example to explain what's wrong with that opting-in requirement. And the context they're writing about is current British marriage law. Okay, they say, take the position of cohabitants who have children and have been living together for a long time. The mother stays at home to look after the children and has no real prospect of re-entering the job market at a level that would enable her to afford the childcare that her absence from home would require. In order to obtain any long-term economic security in case of the relationship ending, she would first have to persuade him, her husband, her partner, that he should take steps to protect her position. It might well be that he is quite happy with the status quo, which favours him. But even if she were able to overcome this initial hurdle and persuade her partner that something should be done, they would then have to decide what steps were appropriate. It might be thought the obvious answer is that they should marry. But research suggests that many cohabitants think it wrong to marry for purely legal or financial reasons. The example, sorry, the alternative would be for them to declare an express trust over their home or enter into a contract for her benefit. However, such arrangements may be complex and require legal advice. 
the couple may simply conclude that the issue is not sufficiently pressing to take any further and that they have other spending priorities. That's the end of the Law Commission's quote. But the outcome in this situation in British law currently is that if the couple separates, the woman is left without any financial protection that would be afforded to divorcing spouses, despite the fact that her relationship is functionally identical to many married couples. And the same problems occur with any proposed holistic status. There must be a difference in law between those who have this status and those who do not have the status. Because otherwise the status is purely symbolic and the, and the state has no business in regulating it. But then the existence of that status means that legal protection is denied to those who are not who, are not, who do not have it, who are engaged in caring relationships but have not yet or have not at all got that status. So instead, I'm going to propose um, piecemeal regulation. Now, piecemeal regulation has two key features. Firstly, the piecemeal model rejects bundling. So it involves the state regulating the different functions or parts of a relationship separately. There'd be no assumption that in any particular case all the functions coincided in a relationship. So you wouldn't get a bundle of rights pertaining to things like property and immigration and inheritance and children and so on. Those aspects of relationships would all be regulated separately. So individuals could form relationships with different people for different functions and that have no effect on their legal status. And secondly, piecemeal regulation involves no special status. Anyone engaged in a regulated relationship activity is subject to the relevant regulations. Deviation from the legal regulations, if allowed at all, is on an opt-out basis, not an opt-in basis. And I'll explain the opt-out in, in a moment. Now, the problem with holistic regulation, then, is that it requires individuals to opt in to a particular status in order to receive uh, access protections. But instead, what I think we should have is the state should stipulate a set of non-voluntary default rights and duties that apply to everyone who performs any given function. So, for example, anyone who is the primary carer of a child, anyone who shares, um, uh, who, who shares ownership of property, anyone who um, shares in purchasing their, their main home, and so on. So alternative statuses, like the minimal marriage or the ICGU status or civil union, means that there will be differences between those who have and do not have those statuses. And on my proposal, there would not be a difference between functionally identical um, relationships according to a status. Now, the content and form of these ideal piecemeal regulations is beyond the scope of this paper. But the key point is that we would have to have a separate debate and a separate argument about every area of relationships and that the, as it were, the outcome of that debate would not necessarily have implications for a different area. So we need separate arguments, in other words, firstly to identify what the appropriately regulated areas of relationships are, you know, should there be regulation here or not, and then we need a separate um, argument to tell us what should the regulation be. Now, the answer to these questions tell us how the regulation should proceed, but crucially, there's no status such as marriage or civil union that decides that in advance. So let me give you an example. So immigration rights for partners is a good one. So at the moment, marriage brings with it special rights for immigration for married couples. 
Now, is that just or unjust? What should we do? Well, that's an enormous policy question of an entirely kind of separate area in and of itself. So people who advocate open borders, for example, will argue that the state shouldn't control immigration at all. And so there shouldn't be any relationship-based special rights for immigration. So for them, the question of relationships wouldn't come up. Others will argue that states do have a legitimate interest in controlling immigration. And then the argument has to be provided as to why and what sorts of immigration should be permitted. And again, depending on how those arguments come out, we might be left with a whole host of options. It might be that we are left with an argument for not allowing anyone to, to immigrate other than socially necessary, um, sorry, financially, economically necessary workers or something of that kind. Or you might be left with an argument that says any immigrant should be allowed to bring somebody of his or her choice with them. I mean, there's lots of different options. And we'd have to have a whole separate seminar about immigration law to find the answer. But the point is marriage or relationship shouldn't settle that in advance. We need to have that separate argument about immigration first. Another example is inheritance tax. Right? So again, in current British law, spouses get exemptions from inheritance tax. Now, it might be that an exemption from inheritance tax is just not justified at all. Some egalitarians will argue that, right? that inheritance tax should apply to all people, regardless of relationships. Others would say, well, no, there should be an exemption from inheritance tax. And then we say, well, why? Well, some people might say it's deeply unjust or, or, or damaging if two people share their main home, if one person dies, leaving the second person with a huge tax bill, and the only way of paying that tax bill is to sell their main home, that's a deeply problematic thing to happen. Well, if that's the justification for an exemption from inheritance tax, then that implies that any people who share their main home should be given an exemption from inheritance tax, regardless of whether they're married, siblings, friends, whatever it might be. Or it might be there's some other justification for exemptions from inheritance tax. Right? Maybe people work harder if they know they can leave their property to somebody and makes them more economically productive. Well, if that's the argument and that's a good argument, then we should allow anyone to nominate the people that one person perhaps that should be able to receive tax-free inheritance. Again, you can see the argument about inheritance tax is, is a whole separate argument from the question of, of marriage and relationships. And it's not decided in advance by any status. Now, I'll give one other example, which is one that is often brought up as the main reason to regulate marriage and relationships, namely children and parenting. Okay, now it's clear that the state has a legitimate interest in regulating how adults care for children. And the state has an interest in that so as to protect those children. Now, some regulations that the state should, as a matter of justice, instantiate apply to any adults, whether they are parents or not. So all adults have the duty not to physically harm a child, for example. Other regulations might legitimately apply to professional caregivers and not to parents. So, for example, um, nurseries and childminders have to adhere to stricter standards of health and safety than do private houses. And there could be various arguments for that, such as the idea that we need to respect the privacy of people's private homes or something to do with professional ethics and so on. We can have arguments that there are differences between the duties that different sort of adults have to children. So it's not my argument that there should be no legal recognition of different sorts of relationships or differences between, as it were, um, statuses, if you like, between those who are in, engaged in child caring. 
But my argument is that these differences should be based on the functional differences between strangers, professional carers and intimate carers. Again, not on the relationship status of the people doing the caring. So the crucial point is there should be no difference between primary caregivers that is based on whether those primary caregivers have obtained some caregiving status. So there should be no difference in the duties of primary caregivers that is based on the fact of those primary caregivers being married to each other or having a minimal marriage with the child in, in, in Elizabeth Brake's term or having an intimate caregiving union status with the child in Tamara Metz's term. So the idea is that piecemeal regulation should um, target all relevant people, namely all primary caregivers, for example, regardless of whether they have acquired a particular status. Okay, now one potential objection to my argument is that it undermines liberty. So the current regime allows people to choose whether or not to marry, and one reason people choose not to marry is so as to avoid the legal regulations that come with marriage. Now, should it not be possible to form a relationship without acquiring, incurring extensive legal duties? Well, I think the answer to this question depends on the relationship activity in question. Right? So some relationships, such as parenthood, rightly bring with them duties that cannot be avoided legitimately, except in the most extreme circumstances, giving children up for adoption or something of that kind. So there are some relationship activities like that. Other relationship activities or other relationships might be more suitable candidates for variation. Um, and property is often thought of as one like this, as an example of this. Now, I'm not going to take a stand here on what those areas of legitimate diversity or deviation might be, or even whether there are any. Again, that would be a whole other, other argument. In general, it, it's a kind of principle of liberalism that the liberal state should only regulate when there is a pressing need to do so. So we might think if there is legitimate variation, then the regulations that are, that are just are going to be minimal, right? But if there are areas of regulation, sorry, areas of relationships that need regulation, but in which there can be legitimate diversity, so if that's the case, then what I'm proposing is that the right way to deal with that legitimate diversity is via allowing people to opt out, not via the current situation of requiring people to opt in. So right now, the way for individuals to enjoy diversity is by failing to enter into a marriage or civil partnership, which has the, the disadvantages that I've been talking about um, this evening. My suggestion is that instead, there should be default regulations that apply to all. And if you want to do something different, then the route that is op open to you is to opt out. And that opting out would be a matter of drawing up a contract or a trust or an agreement, expressly setting out the ways in which the relationship was not going to conform to the standard default regulations. And the law would stipulate when and where opting out is possible and where it's not. Right? So again, it might say you can't opt out and get yourself a voluntary slavery contract or whatever. But the point is that the legal complexity and expense that the Law Commission report was worrying about would apply to people wanting to escape the, um, the presumably just legal regulations, not to those wanting to acquire protection. So people wanting to escape the protection offered in law would be the ones having to take the active step of entering into this kind of trust or, or contract. 
So piecemeal regulation then has many advantages. It's more flexible, allowing a variety of ways of life to receive appropriate state attention. It can meet the need of caring relationships, but it doesn't assume that all caring relationships are attached to other forms of intimacy, or that people have only one sort of caring relationship. And it dispenses entirely with one special status to which special recognition and thus endorsement is attached. Instead, the importance of many different forms of relationships can be recognised and each is provided with the legal recognition, rights and responsibilities appropriate to it. Thank you.